0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Caroline Scott. In this week's episode, we're treating you to the highlights of a recent Mojo talk from the Thompson Foundation, where Mojo specialist Glenn Mulcahy quizzes journalist Philip Bromwell and myself on whether smartphones are best suited to crafted storytelling or raw content. (music) In the past few years we've seen some fantastic initiative by today's news media as publishers continue to experiment with mobile journalism and the benefits it can offer reporters and their audiences. It's true that Mojo is changing the way many journalists produce and curate the news, whether that's through podcasts, videos, online articles or even augmented reality. New workflows are being developed and practiced every day so that news outlets can create relationships with audiences like never before. I mean, you only have to log into social platforms such as Instagram or Facebook to see reporters using their mobile phones to take audiences behind the scenes of the action, conversing with followers and even answering questions live as they're sent in. Vertical, off-the-cuff reporting, which isn't highly edited, is becoming more commonplace. But is the technology best suited for this rougher content that you'd normally see on, say, Instagram stories, Or should smartphones be used to produce highly polished content that blends in with traditional TV packages? In this week's podcast, we hear highlights from the second episode of the Thompson Foundation's Mojo Talk live video series, where mobile specialist Glenn Mulcahy dives deep into the latest trends, hacks and insights to help us stay on the cutting edge of mobile journalism. Myself and RTE mobile journalist Philip Bromwell, whose innovative work has been featured heavily on journalism.co.uk, joined Glenn in this episode to debate what type of mobile content resonates better with audiences and whether we actually need to redefine what professional news content looks like.
1: I'm excited about today's show because I think it's a hot topic that has come up even this week where we've been discussing the type of content that is being produced really effectively with mobile phones. The overarching topic for today is this debate of whether mobile phones are best suited to craft highly polished professional content that basically blends in with any of the other stories that you might see on the TV or whether it's better suited to run and gun, breaking news, frenetic, vertical type content that you might see on the likes of Snapchat or Instagram. It doesn't necessarily must be one or the other. It's a case of let's hear both sides of the argument and let, let's try and tease it out. Without further ado, let's jump over to the conversation with Philip and we will kind of dive in the deep end. Now, if you don't know who he is, well, maybe I'll just let you intro yourself. Would that be fairer or do you want me to big you up and see if I can get you to blush?
2: Well, you definitely get me to blush. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a former colleague of Glenn's, I work at RTE. Ireland's national broadcaster. I have been mojoing for the best part of five years now. Most of my career spent as a video journalist, both at the BBC and at RTE. I now am doing more mojo than I've ever done before. And, uh, I lead a small team within RTE who are 100% mojo. And we have a digital first um, sort of philosophy in that we shoot edit on mobile and publish first for the mobile audience and if necessary and if required and if desired we will repurpose that content for traditional platforms such as television at the end of the line but it's about delivering highly polished mojo content to the audience where the audience is which as we all know increasingly these days is on mobile devices
1: Okay, great. So let's tease it out because the words that you use that are very pertinent to this conversation is highly polished. And as a BBC initially trained video journalist, like you have a a very well-spoken visual style, let's say, your stories might have featured on the board here more than once today during this lesson with these students. And I know for a fact that a lot of your stories are often held up on other education programs around the world as examples of how far you can push the technical and aesthetic quality, if you like, of storytelling on mobile. So let's set out the stall. Why was that the approach that you took when you were actually pursuing mobile journalism? Like, was it because those were the skills you already had or was it because you have a deeper belief, I guess, on how the audience responds to good visuals?
2: I suppose a bit of both. So I arrived at Mojo having spent the large part of my career shooting and editing on bigger cameras on desktop and editing on desktops or laptops. And for me, The evangelical moment of Mojo, which really happened very early on, was that the iPhone, which is the device that I use, has the capacity to be a really good camera and, in effect, a mini production suite in one. So, for me, it was really just transferring everything I knew from my previous experience shooting and editing and bringing it to a new device and treating that device as just another camera as just another editing platform. That was five years ago. In that time, um, the capacity of the iPhone to shoot better pictures, to absolutely do high-end editing work has really progressed. So that what was a powerful device five years ago is now a super powerful device today. I suppose in my case, I wasn't suddenly going to abandon all my sensibilities of knowing how to film and knowing how to compose a picture and my sense of how you film. So I've just brought all that to my iPhone work. And I was always a visual journalist. You know, for me, television or indeed online or social content is often really about pictures and people. So I like to shoot nice pictures. I'm not suddenly going to abandon my sensibilities. That said... Five years into this, I think in a position where we have absolutely demonstrated that you can produce highly polished Mojo content, which sits alongside what my colleagues are doing in a more traditional way. You know, there are Hollywood directors now shooting with phones. You know, that sort of argument of the quality has long since been dismissed. So I think we're at a point in Mojo evolution where really we've shown that the device devices themselves are eminently capable of producing this highly polished content. Equally, there is an insatiable demand for all the other stuff the device can do, which Caroline will speak about later. The raw stuff. You know, a newsroom is not going to go one way or the other. Ideally, a newsroom will want both. They'll want the really high-end stuff, which shows the potential of visual storytelling, storytelling on multiple platforms. But equally, they'll want the raw stuff which is fast quick turnaround and I think the really interesting stage we're at with mojo now is that both are very real life possibilities and it's up to organizations I think to either decide they want to go one way or the other way or ideally in my opinion harness both
1: OK, so I have two perspectives on it, because obviously for people who don't know who the hell I am, I also used to work in RTE and would have been involved in the early inception, if you like, of the Mobile Journalism Project in there, to an extent. But I'm not a journalist. However, I have firsthand experience that when I've been out training people where I've had pushback from people basically saying all those old rules that you're teaching about, you know, understanding how to film sequences, understanding the importance of the wide shot, the mid shot and the close up, forgetting the detail and conveying the story to the viewer. Not moving the camera, which is one of the things that I really, really strongly advocate in spite of the development of gimbals and everything else. And if you were to look at Philip's work, you would classically follow a similar model, Philip. You use camera moves very, very selectively, it's fair to say, right?
2: Yeah, uh, but it it, it is effectively my filming style that I would be filming with another camera. My filming style was established, but I don't do pans, zooms, tilts. I, I let the action happen within the frame. I do shoot sequence after sequence after sequence. I do shoot multiple close-ups. These are, if you look at any of my pieces, and if you were to dissect them, the same sort of themes uh, or stylistic themes reoccur time after time. They're, 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 They're the tools of my trade, really. I think what we did very early on in RTE was show the potential of the device to actually show that it can shoot you know, if you think about what we did first in RTE really was we went straight to shooting complete TV news packages, basically. Um, We didn't have, um, if you like, we didn't have a sort of apprenticeship of getting there. We just went, okay, you know, we now have a device, it can shoot pictures, you can edit with it. Why don't we do what, you know, we're doing with other cameras and and, and and do it with this device. And then you see others who sort of go one step further, such as my colleague, Eleanor Mannion, who decides to go and shoot a documentary with an iPhone. Again, these are, I suppose, um, the stock in trade of a, of a broadcaster like RTE. It relies upon TV news items. It relies upon longer features. So it was this kind of natural transition for us to sort of, take the technology and apply it to what we were doing at that time. Now, since then, we have evolved ourselves in that we have taken note of the, the, the sort of increasing demand for content to be delivered to a digital-first audience, an audience which is always on their phones. So that has allowed us to create this sort of mobile-to-mobile workflow that we have now where we shoot on mobile and we deliver first to the mobile audience that said possibly because we have high standards possibly because we're a national broadcaster possibly because i'm a bit of a perfectionist we have tried to maintain that there is a consistent quality to what we do so that the stories that are being published digital first have a sheen or a sort of have a a level of polish which means that they can also be easily repurposed so if they are needed they can go to television as well that's where we are that's our strategy um, to try to do the best job we can in the shooting so that we can repurpose and slice and dice accordingly but because we're RTE because we're a national broadcaster If this is original content that we are delivering to the audience, it should really, I think, it should stand by the values that that the rest of the output does. So there is going to be a good standard. But the point is, you can achieve that standard. The technology now is there that allows us to deliver highly polished items. It's got so good that you can shoot, edit, subtitle, do graphic design, use multiple apps, to produce really highly polished items which everyone in your organisation will thank you for and will make everyone go, wow, I can't believe that's on a phone.
1: To a certain extent, to give you full credit, I think like, you've, you've set the bar for the social storytelling driven by Mojo. If you just take the series of six stories that you've done about female empowerment over the last two weeks, like, they're perfect for me. And I just showed the Boxer story on the course here today. They're perfect examples of employing the same principles of kind of, let's say, rules of composition and cinematography, if you will, as you would perhaps in classic professional television storytelling to create a mobile-first format that still follows those same rules and is still very, very visually engaging to watch. But can I just tease this back with you, Philip, right? What about, you talked about repurposing, what about repurposing for platforms? Or what about understanding viewing habits of different audiences? Like, do you think that there's an age divide? Do you think people who basically are, you know, sub, I'll pick a random number, sub 30 prefer the kind of run-and-gun frenetic covered in emojis, I could use swear words, I won't, that you get on, on Instagram stories or Snapchat versus uh, perhaps older audience that prefer classically filmed much more, let's call it professional quality, or, or what? Like, like, do you see a mix in it? Do you reversion with that in mind?
2: What we are trying to do is we're trying to observe some of the trends, if you like. You mentioned the boxer story, so and that whole series, we decided to shoot vertically. Now we didn't shoot vertically we we published vertically. we actually shot sixteen by nine with repurposing in mind, but the the version that went to the platforms was vertical. The interviewees are looking straight down the lens, so we've abandoned the t v sensibilities that you would do uh and you know, I suppose maybe twelve months ago, eighteen months ago, you would have said, "Well, let's shoot the interview." Twice. So we have a TV version and we have a mobile version. Well, now we're just doing the one version. We just make sure it's a really nice version, basically. And, you know, people will live with that. And there have been other stories where we have looked at sort of introducing, sort of, they could be stickers or they could, you know, little flourishes, if you like. I suppose you are being influenced by what you see on Instagram and what you see elsewhere. Obviously, everything we are doing as well is subtitled. It is, again, a nod to what is happening on the platforms and the way that people are consuming content nowadays. But as well as all that, what I have tried to do, and this is very definitely with a younger audience or an audience that's not watching television anymore, is to try and in choosing the stories that we do, it's with that audience in mind. So it's trying to tap into the issues that they're interested in, that they may well be talking about on Snapchat, or on Instagram, and just presenting them in a perhaps a more polished, traditional way. I think we will, going forwards, unless the story demands otherwise, we will deliver vertical-first content. Um, It is vertical-first content that can be repurposed. It will be very polished because, to be quite honest, um, that's what we do best. Um, When we talk about raw content, obviously any big breaking news story Chances are the pictures that everyone will see over news broadcasts around the world will have been shot on someone's phone by a member of the public. That's and every news organization in the world will want them because that's the compelling footage. That's the moment. That's the only footage that exists. It's
1: the editorial value, right?
2: Yeah. Do I think we should all be doing that as journalists? I think we can do better than that. And I think we've shown we can do better than that.
1: Now, I do want to bring Caroline in. You've heard Philip's argument.
0: What's your take? I strongly believe that there's a necessity for both in today's news media. The news media industry going into 2019 without the use of that kind of raw, unedited, gritty footage will kind of be taking a step backwards. Because if you think about the way that we communicate as a society, you know, one of the dominant ways that we communicate is by selfie videos, by messaging each other what we've had to eat, by showing each other what we've had in front of us and giving us that kind of instant updates. And so if news organizations want to communicate with their audience as much as possible, from the news organizations that we've been speaking to, we found that, you know, they love being able to connect with them on that level, just like their friends would. And so if we want to kind of talk to news organisations. Um, as audiences, that's a fantastic way to be able to do it, and there's lots of storytelling opportunities available as well that you don't necessarily get in this kind of polished, beautiful content. Which I absolutely love to watch myself, but I'm a massive Instagram story, Snapchat junkie, so I have to admit, uh, I do, I am a massive fan of the kind of raw content, especially from news organizations, because I just feel like I'm much better suited to to be in, in the story myself as opposed to watching. A gorgeous package
1: am i being ageist by basically saying that it does basically have a line and kind of below a particular age group you think we prefer that immediacy that rawness that authenticity for want of a better word
0: young people like to be immediate and get the news quickly and be in the situation and be able to snap each, at each other and dm each other i don't feel that older people might necessarily appreciate it in the same way that people under the age of thirty five would. And that's why these organisations are so keen to, you know, talk to young people and find out how generations that are engaging with the news. But a lot of the people that we've spoken to who are, you know, 14 to 18 years old, some you know, some of our families and stuff, they wouldn't watch a news package on the television. They wouldn't necessarily read a newspaper, you know, they're getting all of their news from their Facebook timelines even if it's raw, unedited content, they don't necessarily seem to
1: mind that much? Certainly my perspective, i just taught, taught a group of kids, basically average age 14 to 16. And when I was asking the key questions, you know, like, so do you ever watch television news? And it was just that kind of blank stare of like, what even is television news? Like, is it a thing? It's like, yeah, you know, a big box in the corner. No, but anyway, um, Panorama, you know, it's a hardcore news brand. And yet you're saying that they're basically leveraging the platform and optimizing the content. the style of storytelling that works on the platform. But well, that begs a question that I posed a while back with Snapchat. And I wasn't joking when I said this. I, I've never gotten Snapchat, complete definition of my age, clearly. And um, I've just never gotten into it. And my joke was that Snapchat should have an age filter. Just like Anything that mentions ring should have, are you over 18 before you can use this app? Do you think that there's a kind of a vanity? I, I don't think that's the right word, but there's there's a kind of... um for a lot of the content that i see that's very very raw it's very driven by selfies it's very driven by this kind of on camera desire to be you know seen
0: Oh, 100%. I completely agree. And I guess it is, in some respects, there's like a vanity aspect to it. But that's because all of us now are our own television stations, we're our our own channels. We don't necessarily just represent the organisation that we're working for. You know, we all have our kind of online personas. So you will see a lot of journalists and um, reporters going out in the field and doing their own piece of camera, maybe for their Twitter, maybe for their own Instagram story. And it's about building that relationship with the audience as a friend. So we've seen a lot of young people, you know, they're following reporters, they're not following the brand. You know, they're, they're a real big fan. For example, you take like Johnny Harris, he's the reporter for Vox. And he did um, a series where he traveled around the world to different borders and he took the audience with them, you know, and all of, all of the audience were giving him tips and advice on where to go, what to film. They were kind of set, setting his agenda for him. And that's because he, as a reporter, developed this one-on-one almost personal relationship with the audience themselves and you know that's not what you get when you watch a beautifully polished piece you don't feel the need to look up the credits and see who did it you know you want to know the personality behind the reporter and you want to know what they think about the story.
1: You know I haven't come from a broadcast background I guess I can completely get this idea of there is a formality I guess is probably the best word to describe it in a kind of formality to the way that a lot of broadcasters might see the brand and everyone is underneath the brand in in kind of the pecking order whereas what you're really getting that if, if I'm not wrong is this idea that there's a level of intimacy and access that supersedes the brand that makes a connection between the journalists if they're willing to speak in the language of the platform.
0: Now we need to rethink what is professional you know just because and I really like what Philip was saying earlier about this kind of polished raw look because I mean it's true. You know, there's a difference between what is professional content and what what's badly edited, what's badly shot. You know, you can film something that's out in the field. You know, I think ABC News today they were just on their Instagram story showing some of the Californian wildfire, but it was it was raw, but it was beautifully shot. You see what I mean? And and as reporters, I guess yeah, content is king and all of that, but. You know, we know how to tell stories. So I do think the kind of main skills are important. You know, you can't just go out and shoot anything. But at the same time, I think there's definitely something that you get from raw footage that you don't get from a heavily polished piece. What's funny is that, you know, my job is to look over the whole journalism industry and see what the trends are and see what's going on. And I don't enjoy watching television news because... I am a millennial and I'm impatient and I want to know What's happening then and there? I appreciate when things are done you know, beautifully. And I myself like lovely polished packages and things, you know, like Philip's team's doing. But a lot of news organizations don't have the ability to do that. And so if you're just starting out in Mojo, for example, and you want to try and engage more people, instead of, you know, trying to think we have to go right up there, you could start off with this raw content and still be connecting with audiences that you haven't been able to connect with already.
1: I think that's interesting because prior to the sort of level of polished production, you know in due course and um, Corinne has jumped in there with a the question Caroline what apps are you using so just in case people aren't aware if they visit the journalism.co.uk social media channels they will see your good self doing lots of weekly updates very very polished I might add beautifully done so um, so you know you too, for the right platform I guess will produce to a very high standard so what apps do you use to produce those?
0: I'm a strong believer that you only need a few apps. I know that there's loads of apps out there that people want to try. And a lot of people watching this live stream will probably have lots of apps on their phones where they think, oh, I could use this and this. This is the whole Mojo overwhelm that we spoke about at Mojo Fest last year. I, I really think that it's about having a few that you use all the time and know how to use them really well. So Filmic Pro, always for filming. LumaFusion, quick. I use Snapseed from Mojo Fest tools. I've been using that quite a lot. And, you know, it's just a case of getting to grips with those specifically. And I've also been trying to experiment with a few apps to make Instagram stories look a bit nicer, you know, the, temp- the ones that you can put templates into them. I'd like to make templates on LumaFusion and then just keep going off that. And in the last few days, since I have a, a bigger screen, I've just a new phone with a bigger screen, I've absolutely been loving making templates on LumaFusion. And I would strongly recommend anyone to just go away and get to grips with one app before they go nuts and get into major overwhelm it's it's easily done we've all done it but you'll you'll never get you'll never get a good workflow if you're if you're going in and out of everything
1: yeah choose the few you need and basically get to know them really really well that's that's great advice wrapping it up then i think the case of it has to be one or the other i get the strong sense that it's an idea of the audience is not the same across all platforms obviously clearly television has a different audience to to those on mobile particularly and on social media but i really really like this point that you made about the level of authenticity and access i remember once actually in in a one of the other broadcasters that i briefly worked with for a while someone once said to me no one ever wants to see what happens behind the camera it's always what happens in front of the camera and i remember (laughs) kind of thinking that that's the traditional tv thinking loud and clear right there right
0: I would argue sometimes it's more professional to show people what you're doing in the newsroom, show people how you're investigating a story, show people how you're setting up a shot and interviewing someone that can't show their face. You know, I think it's it's an amazing tool that we've got to use, this kind of behind the scenes access. And audiences absolutely love it, because just think you're getting a little insight into something that maybe your friends aren't seeing. You know, it seems so little and minor, but that is trust. You're building trust with your audience. You're building the relationship with them. So you're this kind of behind the scenes of how you get stories off the grounds and how you investigate topics and things like that, I, I think that this kind of raw footage is, is useful for that. But, I mean, I guess, as you say, there is space for both, especially, on, say, on Instagram, for example, you don't see much raw footage in the actual timeline. You just see it in the stories. So I think that, obviously... The level of professionalism in how pieces are actually cut together. People want to see beautiful pieces when they're actually looking down their timelines, but it depends on the context, your audience, and the platform. So you've just got to make a decision with the resources that you have and what you're actually posting.
1: Hmm. To be quite, I, so a conversation has come up quite a lot in the course over the last week, in particular, is this idea of if you were to reinvent the newsroom. Uh, I think one person lying to me was just burn it down. Uh, I don't think, <laughs> it made it but it's like, as in, you know, the, the problem is. Having come from traditional broadcast, the problem is that you're in a juggernaut, which is a very clearly defined road ahead of it, and has all these kind of preconceived ideas of the parameters under which they must operate. But if you're just rethink news, and if you're to start from scratch, and if you're to use Mojo as the content creation platform, rather than happen to be tied to high-end broadcast infrastructure, I think it might be a completely different user experience. I really like this thing that you're talking about in the, relation to this idea of building up trust and relationship with the audience, is if the one thing that I see regularly in news is, it's a pipeline, and it's a one-way pipe. No return circuit. There's no real feedback opportunity. How many broadcasters you know, turn off the comments on Facebook, for instance, because mm. they troll, trolled, and they're afraid, afraid of getting trolled? Um, so I think, yeah, it would be a really interesting thing to explore this idea of if you were to restart a newsroom from scratch and redefine it so that the relationship with the audience is actually at the center of the relationship rather than we will tell you what you need to know, um, what might that look like?
0: For example, there's a news organisation called Efecto Cucuy and they're based in Venezuela. And I've interviewed them a few times and they told me that they use Mojo specifically because their government is spreading disinformation about the news organisation and they want to prove to their audience that what they're reporting is what's happening on the ground. So sometimes they have to go live and they have to show this kind of raw footage that's not edited because they want to prove to their audiences, you know, you can trust us, we're we a reliable information source. So I guess it does depend on your situation, but it's, it's definitely worth experimenting with and not poo any anything that's not been seen as traditionally professional, you know hashtags, gifts, stickers, emojis. It's a new form of communication. And you know, this is our business We're there to communicate with the audience. So it's a new language and we've just got to learn it, but we will.
1: So Ritika has come back with this question. How should we cover or interview sensitive cases on mobile? Let's park that for a second. We, we could talk about Yusuf's uh, strategy and then the traditional strategy that which would be an interesting case study. Hossam uh, could 360 video be a more be a transparent way of filming? I'd like to dip into that one, and so let's let's dive into the sensitive cases. Uh, it's very specific, but let's let's address it anyway. So, interviewing sensitive cases on mobile. Go.
0: <laughs> Obviously, we have to talk about Yusuf's face filter case. When Yusuf Omar was working for the Hindustan Times, he went out and he basically interviewed victims of sexual assault, and he made them talk into the camera. But he put a face filter on, which you'll see on Snapchat. A lot of them got to pick whichever filter they wanted and it was, of, say, um, a dragon and the dragon's face went over them. So a lot of audiences might think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a bit unprofessional," in- You know, like you're using a, a face filter of a dragon. But in actual fact, these women got to tell their stories to camera in their own voices and they, their identity was hidden. You know, traditionally, we might um, darken the face so you can't see it or film an interview from behind. So you're just seeing the back of their head. There's no reason that those techniques can't be brought into mobile journalism because effectively you're just shooting on a different device. So you can definitely be using that at the same time. You can actually use emojis or cover over people's faces or that you can be really, really creative with it. And it's not to say that you are you're not making a serious situation lighthearted at all. You can do things in a really tasteful way, maybe use traditional forms of interviewing sensitive subjects and just just transfer that into more of a social media platform style.
1: Yeah, okay, great answer. Uh, Hossam's uh, one on 360, being more transparent, thoughts?
0: Of course, you're seeing seeing everywhere around you. More audiences have to get to grips with how to kind of consume 360 content, what it's about. More journalists have to learn how to shoot in 360, the kind of rules of shooting in 360, um, you know, how close you can be to the camera, how to do it. But I guess when it becomes a bit more accessible, cameras get better, I, I do think a lot more news organisations will be getting involved with it and virtual reality and more exciting technology like that.
1: Yeah, my my own take on it for the record, uh, I would have been interested in 360 since it moved from non-mainstream into mainstream. And uh, same thing, I would 100% agree with you. I think it's down to actually The missing part in the whole equation is the consumer experience. I think that the production process has become so simple now. Like, you know, if you look at Insta360 devices, which are just a couple hundred euros versus the four or 5,000 euros you would have needed just four years ago. It's very, very simple. You can get amazing results. Um, But the key thing being is how can the audience experience it most effectively? Clearly the mobile phone is the best way to experience it, ideally an advisor, but no one has really come up with anything that does that really well and is, you know, very transportable yet, hoping in time. But yeah, I think 360 could be very interesting. There's a huge debate about it and whether 360 or 180 is better, blah, 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 but anyway, that might be for another day, Hossam. We might, we will park that one for a deep dive. As one final question we'll get to, we're just, um, we're almost on the clock. Um, Simone asks, what about immediacy, or sorry, about immediacy, what is your experience with live streaming? Well, that's a really interesting one. Uh, a worth from this, which is um, back in 2015 at the first uh, MojoCon event. Uh, we had a speaker called Shadi Rahimi, who's from AJ Plus in the U.S. Um, and her line, I still remember quite vividly, is uh, when they were coming, they were covering the riots in Charlottesville, I think it was, they live streamed everything. And it was under exactly the same lines as what Caroline has just said. It was very much to do with that idea of the authenticity. It was raw. It was immediate. People could see everything that was going on and make up their own mind on what was going on. But also, which I think is interesting, and this is a throw to journalism.co.uk, at um, a previous News Rewired event, it could be now two years ago, I think, I saw um, Tim Poole that you had as a speaker. And Tim Poole, who is also synonymous with mobile journalism, um, he effectively made his name by turning up with his phone and live streaming for hours at the Occupy protests in the U.S. I'm pretty sure that was his first big flurry into Mojo. So, you know, yeah, it definitely is a way of giving that level of authenticity, but I'm not too sure that people have really perfected the art of live streaming from mobile yet. But That's just my thoughts.
0: Well, there's a lot of ethics behind live streaming, which I feel because live streaming is so easy to do now, you know, there needs to be um, more training in the ethics behind live streaming when you should and shouldn't go live. And of course, like we've covered this topic quite a few times. On journalism.co.uk and we've covered reporters that have done it so tactfully you know Richard Goodyear from ARD in Germany he he covered uh, two terrorist attacks uh, one in Munich one in Nice with his mobile phone beating all the major camera crews he went live to 80 camera crews around the world you know um, with his mobile phone beating people that had technical problems they couldn't get for for transport issues and he he specifically told me Glenn that the best footage he took was what he didn't stream because Mm -hmm. He didn't know what was going to happen next. And so, you know, breaking news scenario where you think, oh, I'm going to take some raw footage because this is great. This is immediate. We need to bring our audiences into it now. Nah, not necessarily, because you don't know what's about to happen next. So that was a really interesting case for me to, to, to hear about how he handled it. And what he actually did was he he took footage and he sent it back to his newsroom for them to then decide what that was going to be put out. It's important for journalists to make those editorial decisions, especially when they're gonna think about going into live streaming. What do you do? And all, and also the, the question is, aside from I guess the ethics is about the quality, do you need to live stream something? It's the same with 360 VR. Do you need to do it? Because if it could be better pre-recorded, I would say do that because you don't want to lose quality and and make errors if you're going to be live streaming something that doesn't necessarily warrant Q&As or isn't exactly timely. So um, I just think that there needs to be a little bit more thought about about it in newsrooms before reporters just go and hit the big red button. If you
2: look
1: up uh, one of my fellow trainers on the Thompson platform, Sue Llewellyn, who has journalism.co.uk from about, I think, two years ago about her acronym, which was Spectre, Spectre. which was all to do with uh, (laughs) the risks, associated with live streaming from a professional journalist's point of view. It's a document that's well worth uh, searching for. Or actually, maybe Hossam or Sarah, if they're online, could maybe post it into the the chat line up here as well. You know, I think it's been a very, very valuable and engaging discussion. Caroline, thank you so much for your insights. I feel so old. I feel so... I just, I, I, you know, I really feel I should break out the Zimmer frame now because I'm so out of touch. But anyway... Um, lots of food for thought, and I really, really appreciate your insights. Thanks a million Thank for you very
0: much. Me. Thank
1: you. Any final words?
0: Go out there, experiment, and then email me so I can interview you about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good tip. Like that. Okay, listen, uh, we'll wrap up. I'll let you go, Caroline. Thanks a million for everything. All right? Bye. Thanks. Bye. This is number two in a series of chats that basically take place on a monthly basis here on Crowdcast on Facebook and YouTube. It's all part of the Journalism Now platform. Uh, which is part of an e-learning initiative from Thomson Foundation. Uh, some of the courses cover some of the topics that we're discussing here. Uh, it, mobile journalism is one of my courses, but we have 360 content. We have social media and lots of others. So if you haven't already perhaps visited the platform, have a quick look. I hope you enjoy the chat, and I hope to see, uh, see all of you on the next one. Bye for now.
0: A big thank you to the Thompson Foundation for permission to publish that discussion. The video live streams from the Thompson Foundation are available monthly on Facebook or via Crowdcast and are part of the Journalism Now platform. It's an e-learning initiative aimed to equip the modern journalist with the latest in digital and multimedia skills through interactive courses. Go and check them out. That's all from us for this week but make sure you head over to newsywire.com to grab your seat at our next digital journalism conference taking place on the 6th of March. <music>